Uh, we're going to be diving back uh, today. We're diving back into Romans chapter 12. Uh, last week, Maria Orta just crushed. Um, week before that, Scott Stroman did a great job. And so uh, Romans 12 comes at a turning point in the, the Paul's letter to the Romans. And it's when we move from the reality of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel and how we're called to respond to what Jesus did uh, in community and in his church. And, um, and so really it's about our life together. And so the miniseries is called Related. How do we relate to, to God? But ultimately, how do we also relate to one another in the church? And then how do we relate to uh, the government? How do we relate to our enemies? All of these things get picked up in Romans chapter 12, 13, 14. So how does the love received at the beginning of Romans impact our relationships with other humans, essentially? And so this idea of the church, church is a, uh, is a messy concept for a lot of people. I remember listening to a talk recently, and a woman was saying, man, no one loves like the church. And she, and she talked about how, uh, she gave a little bit of her story, she talked about how she, how she had a baby uh, with special needs, and how the church rallied around her family, and there were meal trains, and they were going through challenging moments. But the purpose of this woman's talk let me know that this wasn't just going to be about how amazing churches can be, because the conference was on the topic of, of church hurt and learning to rebuild our faith in Jesus and his church after experiencing trauma, spiritual and relational trauma. And she, she was actually there to describe the paradox of church. And if you don't know this, man, there is a ton of paradox around church because there's paradox around every human being you've ever met, and the church is a group of human beings still sinful yet becoming slowly but surely like this beautiful, perfect, in love Jesus that they worship and follow. But they're in process. And in and, and her story, uh, she just worked through that the church was a huge blessing to her and her family for most of the time she was at the church. Uh, over time, she ended up working on staff at the church, very well-known church, and she ended up being sexually harassed and assaulted by a leader. And I'll never forget this line. She said, no one loves like the church when she is at her best, and no one hurts like the church when she is at her worst. And the reason the church has the capacity to hurt or love in such significant ways is because of what God has designed the church to be. The New Testament describes over and over and over again, it describes the church as the family of God, as the household of God, over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, it's the most dominant metaphor for the church in the New Testament. It's not body, it's not army, it's not priesthood, it's not really, uh, holy nation, it's household or family of God. And, and again, if you're interested in this concept as a church, we've been highly influenced by the work of a New Testament scholar named Joseph P. Hellerman. He wrote a book called When Church Was a Family, and he kind of works through this theologically. So here's the deal, though. Because church is a family, it can be one of the greatest blessings in our lives but it can also inflict some of the deepest wounds. By the way, that's not just, that's you too. You have the capacity to wound and be wounded. Again, we're impacted, here's the thing, we're impacted more by family than by just friends or coworkers. As a matter of fact, um, the reason some people are so impacted, are more, the reason why some people are more impacted by their friend groups than their family is often because their family was so dysfunctional. They long to have a family that would impact them one way or another. But everyone deep down cares what their family thinks, or again, they wish they had a family to care about because family shapes us in ways other things just don't have the same power to. Again, think about marriages. 
If someone's in a healthy, vibrant marriage, that relationship's a big part of their sense of happiness or well-being. Now, that does not need you, mean you need to be married to be happy, but if you are really happy and you happen to be married, there is a very good chance that the marriage is good. On the flip side, if someone is in an abusive relationship with someone who's dangerous or unfaithful or manipulative or narcissistic, that relationship's likely a big part of why life likely feels hard to them. Now, spouses are one thing, uh, but parents are another. Thanksgiving might have revealed that to some of us freshly, if we're honest. Can I do so much work with helping people untangle lies and narratives they received from caregivers or their family of origin growing up that have led to destructive, sinful behaviors in their present? They have these relational patterns they feel stuck in that feel fixed, but they're not. But until they identify, man, why do I do what I do? It's going to be hard to get free from those things. Um, seriously, probably like the majority of the pastoral care work I do and the majority of people I refer out to to licensed Christian therapists, uh, it's, it's people with unhealthy relational patterns or issues that are connected to explicit messages that were communicated to kids directly, like you're awful, you're terrible, you never amount to anything, or you need to earn our love or whatever, um, or parents that implied and modeled sinful patterns as normative. So bad parents or caregivers can significantly impact someone for the rest of their life. On the flip side, healthy parents, parents who are welcoming and safe and nurturing, healthy parents create a foundation for their kids to build their life on and thrive into the future and into adulthood. That they may give that gift, they may give that gift away in the future. Research has linked healthy relationships, healthy attachments with healthy parents to all sorts of things like being more likely to have courage. You're less likely to become addicted. You have better interpersonal relationships. So family is a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. But here's what I want you to catch. That power can be harnessed for good or evil. It's like the internet. So much good that could happen with the internet. So much, um, so much, there's so much we can be made aware of. There's so many things we can be invited to help with that we never would have known about in, in yesteryear. But at the same time, there's so much garbage on the internet that makes us dumber and angrier and less likely to help people. So family, even more than the internet, it impacts people in a significant way, either for good or for bad. You could say family's the original metaverse, I guess, or metanet or whatever's coming. It's the overarching thing that so often we live out of. So when God calls the church to be a family, a household, not just a Sunday service you go to, not just an event you go to, not just an, a building you walk into, but a family you belong to, he is putting us in position to significantly form one another. Which as a pastor stresses me out. It is an honor, but it is a sobering responsibility. Because when you live life as God's family, what the New Testament calls the household of God, again, we have tremendous op opportunity either to heal or to wound, to bless or to curse, to add security or to add insecurity, to create safety or to instill hiding and shame, to create belonging or remind them of exclusion they've carried their whole life. And so even though one of our values as a church, as family, we don't want to be any old family. I don't know about you guys, I don't need a second dysfunctional family. One is good for me, all right? 
We don't want to be a dysfunctional family that wounds people. We want to be a safe family that creates space for women, children, and men to grow up into maturity, into the image of Jesus. Again, the best, best place for a child to grow up into adulthood is a healthy family. The best place for a follower of Jesus to grow up into spiritual maturity is in a healthy spiritual family. That doesn't just teach correct gospel doctrine, as Ray Ortland says, but also models healthy gospel culture. Communities that apologize to one another, who, who do reparative work, who own the impact when they impact each other, who ask for forgiveness, who extend forgiveness, who serve one another, who don't demand to be served, but ask for others to serve them. And, and then people choose to serve them in love, and on and on and on it goes. And so it's important that we define the type of family we want to be and what, type, and what kinds of qualities we want our family to have. Now, fortunately for us, there's this guy named the Apostle Paul. And this guy wrote a letter to a church in Rome. And in that letter, he describes the kind of family the church is called to be. And again, it's in this Romans 12 to 15 back end of as the gospel shaped us, how does it shape our relationships to one another? And so what I want to do is look at that real quick. And if you like short sermons, you're in for a treat. So we have one point, which you know I can belabor, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Romans chapter 12, we're going to read verses um, 11 to 12 in the CSB. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. And so in these next two weeks, um, we're going to do a little, again, we're, we're going to talk through these uh, ideas. Um, but one idea I want to look at today is this, is that church families are to be marked by patience. Patience. And so this is my big point today is patience. Uh, John Stott, an Anglican scholar, writes this about these verses. He says, real love is patient. Verses 11 to 12 give us four imperatives that are really just calls to patience. At first, these two verses only seem to be about a relationship to God, but, what we must know, but we must notice that they stand in the middle of numerous directive statements about Christian relationships. Therefore, Paul is really exhorting us to use all our spiritual resources, not to give up on our Christian brothers and sisters. We must keep our hope, be patient in all the troubles we meet, and address all this with prayer. How does this relate to Christian fellowship? Perhaps one aspect of what Paul means that we are to be models to our brothers and sisters when we go through difficulties, but it may be that we are to meet the troubles of Christian relationships with patience and prayer. And John Stott closes with the, the understatement of the century for Andy Rogers. To be involved deeply in people's lives is hard work. If we do life as the church for any amount of time, just like in families, we're going to go through different seasons, and we're going to get frustrated with each other. Again, in a family, if, if, a, if a sibling or a child or a parent wrestles with addiction or a mental health challenge, or a behavioral issue, for example, that doesn't just impact the person with the addiction or the health challenge. The whole family system is impacted. If a parent is unstable, the, the family will be unstable. If one sibling has, an unhealthy, has unhealthy relational patterns, that impacts their brothers and sisters. If one church member has unhealthy relational patterns, that impacts their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, fam, life and community requires patience. It requires patience. It means you have 
grace and space for other people's journeys. We have to, because we all need grace and space. We all need time. Sanctification is the ultimate slow burn drama. It is painstakingly slow if we're honest sometimes, but it does get to the good part, and the good parts are real good. Again, just like when a married couple gets married, it takes a few years to fully take in the tougher parts of, the, of each other's personalities, besetting sins, and character issues. Right, like stuff that used to be cute is like not cute, you're five. Even the healthiest people who are honest put their best foot forward during the initial dating and engagement process, right? Because again, you want honesty, right? But you don't want, right? You don't want to, whatever, connect on hinge, sit down, and like, let me give you all my dysfunction tonight. Like, it's probably not good. It's good he's self-aware, but that he's telling me in this context is probably isn't good. But as time goes by, when we're in close proximity to one another, couples start to realize there is insecurity or anger or lust or pride or greed or gossip or conflict avoidance or a need to win every argument. You start to see that in your partner and shocker of shockers in yourself. So the question isn't, do you have issues? It's what issues do you have and are you working on them? Are you actively seeking to become like the person of Jesus? Because it does not happen on accident. And for our community purposes, the question isn't our sinful people slowly being transformed into the image of Jesus going to let you down, miscommunicate, or even sin against you. That's going to happen. It's what will you do and what will they do when it happens. And so many people bounce from church to church, just like they bounce from romantic, romantic relationships to romantic relationship or friendship to friendship to avoid looking at what is true of them. Because the longer... You're in relationship. Yes, you are very aware of, like, they got issues. But people who mature stop saying they have issues, and they go, man, I have issues. I'm the biggest problem I can control in this relationship, in this community. And and, and here's the thing. When 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 you don't do that and you just go, this is what this community is or what these people are, what my friends are, you miss out on the transforming effect of having people who know the real you, love the real you, and call the real you to become the truest you in Jesus. But it takes time. It takes, it takes a while to get known well enough for people to help you well. And um, it, it, it takes time to get to know other people's issues and sins as disclosure happens over time. In Terry Wardle's book, Broken to Beloved, he describes, I know like everyone's reading this book, so it's fine. Um, He describes the slow, intentional process that moves dirty rocks into diamonds. Now, I know you guys are thinking, not another long, detailed diamond story. (laughs) Bro, you you went way too far a couple weeks ago. Please bear with this quote, okay? Last time I'll be creative uh, ever again. Terry says this. I'm just joking, guys. Take these. Only an expert, only an expert can see that the rough exterior of a rock conceals something priceless. Even keener eyes as well as skilled and experienced hands would be needed to patiently and carefully free the hidden gem from its less than impressive outer shell. Only the surgeon-like hands of a skilled gem cutter could have released the priceless jewel hidden deep within that dirty black lump of coal. Freeing a diamond from its rough exterior involves time, patience, and precise steps. First, during what's called 
the planning phase, a skilled lapidary must examine, that's the first time you've heard that word. A skilled lapidary must examine the rough diamond to determine how to cut for maximum efficiency. The process begins with the realization that every rough diamond is unique. Its facets precise to the diamond's original interior makeup and design. Next comes the cleaving or sawing in which the diamond is clearly separated into pieces that will become in individual gems, which if we're honest, the sawing into the parts of us that we think are us, but they're not the real us, our pet sins that have just kind of grown into us. It's a painful moment, but there are gems. Done correctly, something valuable emerges. After that comes the brooding, where the separate gems that emerge from the rough diamond are rounded, a process that many believe best reflects the desirability of the gems to potential buyers. Finally, the, gen, the gem moves to the stage of polishing, completed by a worker known as a brillianteer, who is committed to exposing the gem's true brilliance and quality. Brillianteer is a great word, isn't it? I'd love a brillianteer to have a go at me, Terry says, to polish me up until I'm a wonder to behold. I admit I wouldn't be very enthusiastic about the other stages, all the planning, cleaving, and brooding, so what a word, that proceed. Fortunately, I'm a human being and not a rough diamond, making those stages somewhat irrelevant to real life. Or are they? Close quote. Guys, our process is slow, but it is intentional. And the people you're in community with, they need it, and you need it. But it is, I, I promise you, the rooms that this stuff happens in are not clean. They get messy. Okay. You've got to go through the, the mess to get to the brilliance, and that's life in the church. And here's what I want to say. It's worth sticking with someone to watch them move from tough rock exterior, dirty tough rock exterior, to a radiant diamond. It is also worth sticking with a group of people, the group of people God's using to move you along that process yourself. So often people want to bail too early. But believe me, again, believe me, I know it's hard. As a pastor, I have seen this church at its worst. Uh, the pandemic was the closest I have been from resigning from pastoral ministry forever. Uh, I sat with some very frustrating people and hurtful situations. I can go on and on and on about unreasonableness and selfishness and a lack of concern for how their actions impacted others. But, but, but here's what I want to say. John Stott again saying to be involved deeply in people's lives is hard work. What I found through this pandemic is that the hard work was worth it. As a pastor, I, I don't just see people at worst, at their worst. That is the pain of ministry. You do see people in some, some rough spaces. But I also get to see people at, as they're becoming their best, and that is the privilege of ministry. But it's also the privilege of life in the body of Christ. We are all called to full-time ministry. Again, another thing I got to have a front seat for during the pandemic was the transforming power of Jesus. And they're not their stories to tell, so I'm not going to tell them. But I got to see people who were full of pride take concrete steps in the direction of humility, considering others, not just themselves. I watched some people who wrestle with greed start to more move towards the radical generosity Jesus calls them to. I watched people who couldn't have a difficult conversation to say, literally to save their life, learn how to have hard conversations and advocate for themselves in unhealthy relationships in healthy ways. 
I watch people who have been defeated by sexual addiction and sin move towards sexual wholeness and integrity on their own, by their own choosing. I watch people consider their impact on those around them that they're in relationship with and learn to love even when it's hard to admit how you impact others. But with all those precious people, here's what I want you to catch. To, to, the, to the woman or to the man, it was the fruit of years of slow discipleship as I look back. It's years of creating safety so confession could come out of spaces that have been covered by shame for a very long time. If you are in Christ, there is a better version of you five years from now and an even better version of you that that will meet Jesus one day. But relationships in his church are one of the main tools used by Jesus to transform us. You see all throughout the New Testament, it comes back to that over and over and over again. You cannot grow apart from the body of Christ in a meaningful way long term. So please don't run before someone has the chance to change. Don't run because conflict's awkward. Don't run because you feel insecure. Don't run because you feel unloved. Talk to people about that stuff and see what God does in you. Start to learn things about yourself that don't even have to do with the other person that you miss out on if you don't have the conversation. Hey, I'm feeling this way. Is there truth to this? Sometimes a community reveals our immaturity because it's uncomfortable for us. It's not even like a, a hard conversation or a discipleship moment that's intentional. It's God using the people of God, rubbing up against us to make us these diamonds. What I want to say is it really is worth it. Paul Tripp wrote a book called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, which is kind of cheesy, but it's just one of the truest <laughs> book titles I've ever heard. So please don't give up now. Church, I want to encourage you to keep praying, to stay patient, stay moving forward. If you need help navigating a relationship with someone that's gotten stuck, you've had one-on-one conversations that have gone, haven't gone anywhere, I mean, let's talk about that. If someone's mistreating you and never takes responsibility, I'm not saying allow that to keep happening. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not morally right for them. It isn't, it, that's not morally right, period. It isn't good for you on the receiving end, and it's not good for their soul long term because they're going to keep taking that into different relationships and different churches. But I am talking about patience with everyday, run-of-the-mill sin and people just being lame. I know I've said this before. Colossians says bear with one another, right? Like you're someone's bear, whether you, wanna, you realize it or not, even if it's because you don't ask for anything. They're annoyed because they're just like, does she want to be here? Does he want to be here? What's going on there? What's going on with that person out? Why are they so quiet? Are they judging me? Whatever it is, there are so many things about us that require patience and grace. Sanctification, the process of becoming like Jesus, is slow both for you and for the other members of your community. We are going to annoy each other. We're going to fail each other. But this is where what Paul is describing, especially at this cultural moment, has the ability to impact the world around us in, in, a, in striking ways. One of the grossest things about what's happened over the last two years is the way that politics have infiltrated the church in just awful ways. And not politics, the way we treat people who disagree with our politics. And we're not doing anything new. We're doing what the world does out here. We can't stand to be with people who are different to us. But let, let's not do that. Take politics out of it. Just good old-fashioned human relationships where people who we agree with on everything hurt us and let us down. Would we not be like the, the cancel culture around us, but we'd be people who can be around someone we disagree with and be very patient with them. 
And let's not be a people who gossip about one another. Let's be a people who pray for one another as opposed to being people who talk about one another. Guys, this will stand out. It is salt. It is light. It's like, it's shining like stars in a broken and crooked generation. Like it really is. The way we treat each other. Jesus said, by the way that you love one another, men and women will know that you're my disciples. We can actually do that for real. Not perfectly. We are going to fail. But when we do, how do we handle offense? How do we handle hurts? How do we handle sin? We live in a culture where no one takes responsibility for themselves. They just jump into a crowd and yell at whoever it is they want to yell at. We'd be a people who go, I need Jesus. You look like you need Jesus. And you know what? You might need to learn some things. You might be totally wrong. But I'm going to walk alongside you. I'm not going to bury you because you're not on, like, my level or whatever. And so right now what I want to do is move into communion. Angel, if you want to pop up and hit the lights. Because here's the thing, guys. Patience with other people is, it's hard. We don't like it. We don't like it. I know for some of you guys, you're not patient with yourself. Some of you guys are so hard on yourself, and it breaks my heart, man. One of the things, most, like half the time I'm with you, I'm like, hey, hey, you've got a standard Jesus never put on you. And you've got a timeline he definitely never agreed to. <laughs> or this would be the, the fastest in human history. Like you're the exception to 2,000 years, you know, 5,000 years of God changed, whatever. You're, whatever. I don't need to get into that right now. You know what I mean? As long as God's working with people, you think you're going to go faster than everybody else, but he doesn't. He's slow, man. I hate to admit how insecure I still am. How sinful I still am. There are moments where I'm like, man, this part of me is not where I'd like it to be. And I know you guys, some of you guys feel that same thing. Some of you guys are really hard on yourself. Some of you, you've got so much grace for yourself, but you're real hard on other people. No one loves you well enough. No one's good enough to you. No one's kind enough to you. No one understands you enough. And on and on it goes. And, and you're not seeking to understand or love others. We'll get into this next week because we talk about empathy and different things. But... Here's the beautiful thing about Jesus is he is so patient with everybody. He's even patient with your lack of patience with other people. You're so hard on yourself. And he's like, sweetie, you don't need to be that hard on yourself. But you don't need to be that hard on yourself. I don't know where you picked up that you need to be here in your life at this point, but it's not from me. You're amazing right in this moment. There's still a diamond that's being unearthed. The best part about you isn't something you're going to achieve. It's something that you're going to become. And he's so, so, so patient. He comes to this earth as we celebrate at Christmas. He enters into human history. Even just his life cycle, guys, is ridiculous. He chooses to be born in a human body. It's likely a teenage mother in a cave with animals. And he patiently just lives life amongst these just stupid people. Let's be honest. If you're Jesus, everywhere you go, you're like, oh, my gosh. They're doing, they're doing that. They're doing that. They turned the temple into that. The temple. I'm here to die for Peter. Peter's telling me I shouldn't, I shouldn't do it. <laughs> so get behind me and say, so, yeah, you might want to rethink through your redemption mission you've planned before the history of the world. Got them arguing about who's going to sit on the right and the left. Like it's, They're sitting with Jesus going, what we're really into is like where our seats are going to be at the banquet. Walking through a town 
It's crazy, man. You think you have anger issues. They, a, a town doesn't offer them bread. And Peter and Angel are like, let's call down fire from heaven, Jesus. And he's just like, it's so funny. He's just like, no, no. The tabernacles come, and uh, they go up to the Mount of Transfiguration. It's like Elijah and Moses and Jesus, like a real Star Trek kind of beaming in oh, Hebrew prophet situation. And Peter's like, let's, let's, mon- let's uh, monetize this. Let's turn this into an amusement park. Get some construction going. People come up and see these guys. Man, the offerings would be insane. Look out, Temple. We've got 3D Elijah. And, and Jesus is like, no, no, God, don't tell anyone about me. I mean, <laughs> Judas, who betrays him, who's at dinner with him. Jesus washes his feet. And you look like you look at the life of Peter and just over and over and over. Like post-resurrection, God, like he's reinstated by the risen Christ. Then he falls into racism and legalism later in life. And, and then God graciously Paul to, to put him back on track. And it's like, dude, you're a leader in the church. Are you, are you kidding me? And God is patient with humanity, but he's also patient with you. You have so many moments where you look in the mirror and you go, are you kidding me? And Jesus goes, I'm not kidding. Grace is this good. I, I'm this patient. You did that classic you thing again. It's going to be awkward. You're going to have to apologize and explain it. And, and I'm going to work it out in those relationships. You're going to be fine. It's going to be messy, but you're going to be fine. And guys, and then, and then he goes to the cross. I've said this before, but it's just real. It's not, they mock Jesus when he's on the cross, naked, whipped, body broken open. It is so, such, it's such a horrific scene, and it's not his fault. And the soldiers are mocking him. If you were the son of God, you could come down right now. And again, it's not weakness that holds him up there. It's love. It's patience. And so... What I want you to know this morning is you have a patient king who doesn't just love you. He likes you. If you're in Christ, God, like he, he, he just, even if you're not, he's calling you to himself. He is the best. And so what I want to do right now is, is Jesus actually instructs his followers. He says, when you take communion, do this in remembrance of me, remembering my, my life, my death, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. We know this side a couple days later, you know, my spirit poured out to you and all of it is acts of grace to a people that I, I should have given up on, but I, I'll never will because I dig them. I love them more than I love themselves. And so I want to um, pray and we'll open up the communion table. And if you're like, man, G- Jesus, are, are you impatient with me? Just confess what you think he's impatient about. And then hear him just tell you, man, I, I'm patient. I want this to change but I'm patient. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love. And I died for you. Matter of fact, because I died for you and you're in covenant with me, even if I was going to discipline you, it would be for your good. It wouldn't even be a punishment. It would be to set you free from things that harm you like a good father. And so I just want to pray his patience over us. Um, King Jesus, we are not, we're not worthy of your love. We are not worthy of second chances, never mind the 900th chances we get all the time. And you know what? We're also, I think we have to think of sanctification as like, I want to be there so I can feel better about myself. We're not worthy of sanctification. We don't get to go where you're taking us. You choose to take us by the hand and take us to a place that we're terrified of, but our hearts desperately long to be. 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You're not just sovereign. You're beautiful. You're not just holy. You're patient. And so, Lord, would we remember your cross at communion, not just as an act, not just as an act of sacrifice, but as, a, as the world's greatest moment of patience, sticking with a group of people who should not be stuck with. Thanks that you'll never leave us or forsake us. And Lord, would you help us become people who are patient with one another in light of what this communion is all about. In Jesus' name.